This is Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Today, I'll be speaking with Lisa Campion about the ancient healing technique, Reiki. Did you know that there is actually a medical condition called broken heart syndrome? Other names for this condition are stress-induced cardiomyopathy, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, and apical ballooning syndrome. I've seen this a few times in my career, the idea that you can literally die from a broken heart. When there is a severe emotional or physical stress, like loss of a loved one, serious accident, a really bad argument, financial loss, intense fear, receiving awful news, that feeling of emotionally being brokenhearted can literally lead to cardiac consequences and actually cause a broken heart. It can happen even if you're healthy, where an extremely stressful event can have impact on your heart. In her book, The Fear Cure, Dr. Lissa Rankin talks about a 1971 review in the Annals of Internal Medicine where George Engel compiled the accounts of 170 case studies of those frightened or terrorized individuals who died instantly. A woman, seeing teenagers outside her apartment beating and robbing a bus driver, died while phoning the police. A 35-year-old man accused of robbery told his lawyer, I'm scared to death, then he fell to the ground and died. A 45-year-old man, about to give a speech, apparently died of stage fright. A 72-year-old woman died after her purse was snatched. There were others from Engel's study that died from acute shock and grief. A 14-year-old girl dropped dead when told of her 17-year-old brother's sudden unexpected death. An 18-year-old girl died right after being told her 80-year-old grandfather, who helped raise her, had passed. One of the owners of the motel in which Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated collapsed and died from a cerebral hemorrhage upon hearing the news. It was first described in 1990 in Japan, and Takasubo cardiomyopathy is named after an octopus trap, which has a shape that is similar to the way the heart looks when one develops this syndrome. Even though I'm Asian American and I love seafood, I literally had to look up what an octopus trap looks like, and it's essentially a funnel or cone-shaped container. And in general, octopuses enter it to take shelter, and they generally don't try to escape. In broken heart syndrome, the heart's main pumping chamber, the left ventricle, changes shape, affecting the heart's ability to pump blood effectively as a result of severe emotional or physical stress. Broken heart syndrome may initially be diagnosed as a heart attack, as most experience chest pain and shortness of breath. The symptoms and test results are similar. But further workup for these patients typically reveal that unlike a heart attack, their heart arteries look clean, and that there's no evidence of blocked heart vessels in broken heart syndrome. In broken heart syndrome, the symptoms are like that of heart failure. Your heart literally enlarges and doesn't pump well but it's temporary. Broken heart syndrome can lead to severe, short-term heart failure, and patients are usually treated with heart failure medications. Most people make a full recovery after a couple weeks. And according to Harvard Women's Health Watch, the precise cause isn't known, but experts think that surging stress hormones, for example, adrenaline and catecholamines, essentially stun the heart triggering changes in heart muscle cells or coronary blood vessels, or both, that prevent the left ventricle from contracting effectively. Broken heart syndrome occurs more often in women than men, especially after menopause. Death is rare, and rarely reported complications include arrhythmias, obstruction of blood from the left ventricle, and rupture of the ventricle wall. Don't you think that this is pretty remarkable? The idea that you receive something that is really shocking and that this overwhelming stress response can suddenly cause your heart to go awry? 
The idea that really bad physical or emotional stress can cause a medical disorder, and rather quickly, when these stress hormones or catecholamines cause your blood vessels to spasm or dysfunction, resulting in your heart muscle tissue to literally become stunned, and that it becomes toxic to your own heart? And I think if one doesn't want to die right now, we should reconsider the impact of stress on our lives. I talk about broken heart syndrome because it's literally possible to die from stress or become fucked up from stress. But we decide if this is permanent or temporary. Let's be honest. Stress happens. That's a shitty thing about stress. It happens. There are things that we have to deal with in life that are presented into our lives, but we control how we react to it. And controlling how we react to it is a learned response. Sometimes I wonder if when stress happens, if we spend more of our energy empowering the stress instead of taking care of ourselves and empowering our own selves to deal with the stress. If you had to make a deal, would you invest in your stress or would you invest in yourself? What's the better investment? If you think something can kill you, maybe you're right and it can literally kill you. However, if we feel more strong than not, more full than empty, more positive than negative, maybe there's a greater chance that we can ride it out and look beyond this very moment. And today I'll be speaking with Lisa Campion, who is a Reiki master teacher and energy healer and psychic counselor about Reiki. She wrote the book, The Art of Psychic Reiki, and it's a super interesting read, considering the fact that Reiki is gaining more acceptance in traditional places like hospitals and nursing homes, as a complementary healing modality. Reiki is a gentle, powerful, hands-on technique from Japan that uses the universal life force energy around us to heal the body, mind, emotions, and spirit. It's known to reduce stress, promote relaxation, and allows everyone to tap into the unlimited life force energy to improve health and enhance the quality of life. And Lisa writes in her book, of all the miracles of Reiki, self-healing is the biggest. Welcome to Lost or Found, Lisa. I'm so excited to talk with you today again. Oh, thanks so much for having me back, Michelle. And, you know, before we begin, I just want to say I really enjoyed reading your book, The Art of Psychic Reiki. I really found it fascinating, interesting, and such an enjoyable read to the point where I'm considering a first attunement. But as we begin, can you describe to our listeners what Reiki is? Sure. Um, Well, thank you so much for reading my book. I always feel sort of flat, so flattered when people read my book. I'm like, oh my God, someone actually read my book. It's I loved your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So Reiki, if you've never, don't know what it is, it's a gentle um, hands-on healing energy technique from Japan. It's sort of like, some people describe it as like acupuncture without needles. Um, right. I mean, I live in Boston and it's used in all of the big city hospitals here in Boston. And we have some really famous hospitals here. It's kind of a hospital town, you know? And uh, most of them have um, what they call complementary and alternative medicine clinics inside their hospitals, which is sort of, you know, different kinds of alternative medicine. And Reiki is the most popular. So most of the hospitals here in Boston have full-time Reiki staff and then a host of volunteers that will come down and do Reiki on the patients in the hospital. And they found that Like Dana-Farber uses, Dana-Farber Cancer Center uses Reiki when people are receiving cancer treatments. Um, They've done a lot of uh, scientific research that says that Reiki improves conditions for pre- and post-surgical. With people, it it reduces the side effects of chemotherapy when people are getting cancer treatments. It's used in pain clinics um, all over the the world um, to reduce pain in people in a non-narcotic way. Um, and it's also quite effective for emotional issues. So um, it's good for people with anxiety and depression. And I, p- I think all those things are things that are hard to find good, sometimes good medical treatment for, you know, like if we don't always have good medical solutions for anxiety and depression. We have some pharmaceuticals that can work, but Reiki seems to have like a more holistic um, approach to it. And basically the idea is that we have energy, we have chi right? Or key, Reiki, Reiki. So Reiki means, Reiki is Japanese word that's loosely translated to mean 
life force energy. <clears throat> and the idea is that when we can uh, remove the blocks and flow life force energy through us in a better way, we have better health. We're more relaxed. We have better health. And that when we have this flow of, of energy, this chi or ki flowing through us, that it kicks in. The bo our body is a self-healing mechanism. Its goal is to always try to strive for homeostasis. And when we can relax and bring stress levels down, the this natural healing techniques of our body kick in. And, um, you know, the body strives to find its own balance. I was really interested to read because I was reading up what hospitals offer Reiki. And a lot of them are in New, New England. You would think in California there would be more, but there's actually very few. And I was reading, you mentioned Dana-Farber, the Children's Hospital of Boston, Yale New Haven Medical Center. Um, I found Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, Columbia University, New York Presbyterian, Duke Integrative Medicine. But very few hospitals in California, strangely, when you would think that Californians would embrace this as like a holistic approach, as a complementary modality. Yeah, I don't know why that is. I mean, I'm a New Englander, so I don't really know what's going on in California. Um, my suspicion is that it's, I don't know if this is true, so I hesitate to say because it's just a, an idea that there's a little bit of a monopoly on hospitals in California. Uh, I don't know, like it sort of would depend on that medical conglomeration's rules or, approach, you know, yeah. approach on whether they're going to, you know, provide that is something that they want to do. And now Reiki is not a, not a religion. So I think people get kind of confused. They think that Reiki is a religion or that it's against their religion. Um, it doesn't have any religious, I mean, it comes from a Buddhist, actually, the person who created Reiki um, was a, was a Buddhist monk, but it doesn't have any religious affiliations or require that you have any religious affiliations any more than like acupuncture would. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think some people get kind of concerned or confused. If you look up Reiki, you know, um, it'll be like, well, you're, you know, non-Christian <clears throat> vegetarian Satan worshiper. <clears throat> that, like, I, I don't know, you know, I'm pretty sure there's not only vegetarian Satan worshipers that are practicing Reiki. Um, seems like there's a whole wide field of it, but I think some people don't know what it is. They look it up on the internet. They get some weird mm -hmm. information from the internet, which, you know, that's what happens when you look things up on the internet. And there is misinformation on the internet. You Absolutely. Know. Lots and yeah. lots and lots of it. Mm -hmm. So I think you, I think a lot of the, you know, reasons why, so the Catholic church came down hard on Reiki a couple of years ago and decided they weren't going to <clears throat> allow it in any Catholic hospitals. But I feel like they didn't do a thorough investigation of it. They just sort of, they probably looked, you know, they probably looked it up on the internet and said, no, vegetarian yeah. station worshipers allowed, you know? But technically as a human, like any human can get access to the universal life force energy, right? With like training and stuff. It's not like just <laughs> one person versus another. Absolutely. Would you say that's so, true? Absolutely. I would say that's true. And that's one of the miracles of Reiki, I think. So mm -hmm. to me, Reiki is a miracle. And I, for a few reasons, um, and the accessibility of it is one of the reasons why I think it's so incredible. So I, I also have been teaching in an energy medicine school for the past 15 years. It's a three-year school, sort of like a master's degree. It's the equivalent mm -hmm. of training of a master's degree. And that's an incredible thing to do, but we don't always have time for that. What I think is incredible about Reiki is really anyone can learn it. You know, it just requires a few hours of study. It requires something that's called an attunement, which the attunement is the um, the process by which the teacher changes the energy field of the student in a permanent way that allows them to access a specific frequency of Reiki. So Reiki is a very specific frequency. And if we think about frequency as notes on the piano scale, right? It's one, it's one specific note. And it's one that is very easy for people to anyone to access. And I think the coolest thing, especially about Reiki one and people who begin with Reiki is that the focus is on self-healing techniques. Mm -hmm. So it very quickly, like I teach Reiki one in a day, six to eight hours of training. Um, it's not expensive. It's so it's affordable. Um, and I think the short time commitment and the short price commitment make it something that's super accessible for people that don't have time to go to three years of you know energy medicine school or don't have time yeah. to study four years to be an acupuncture or a chiropractic. Pr chiropractor. But it's a lot of practice thereafter, right? Like yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, you got to practice, practice. And the more you, you know, the more some people and everyone is sort of different reasons why they want to do it. So mm-hmm. um, some people just want Reiki one for self healing They're They have pain, they have depression, they have anxiety. Um, and they just want to work on themselves, which is a great, you know, I mean, it's sadly uncommon that healing modalities have self healing techniques, which seems really weird to me. Like, if you're going to learn a healing modality, wouldn't you want to work on yourself? Like, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? And then other people want to work on their fr- their family, their kids, their pets, their inner circle of people. That's really Reiki level one. And other people have a goal of, you know, working professionally or adding Reiki into what they're already doing. Mm-hmm. Nurses learn it. I've taught quite a few physicians, by the way, um, how to do Reiki. And I, I think it's so depends on what people want, like how much study or time you're going to put into it depends on really what you want to use it for. Yeah. Would you say that the universal life force energy, is that love? It, it is with Reiki. So it's best described as unconditional love. And that that seems to be that sort of a, if you know anything about chakras, it's a combination mm-hmm. of the crown chakra and the heart chakra. So the frequency of Reiki is the combination of, of the, so the crown chakra is universal energy and the heart chakra is love. So we get sort of universal, unconditional love. And we are in pretty short supply on on universal unconditional love on the planet. I, I say like, well, we as humans are very capable of giving of real unconditional love. I always say, if you want unconditional love, it's golden retrievers and children under two <laughs> who play it real, who aren't hypocrites. That's right? it. That's all you're getting. That's that's where you're getting it from. <laughs> and give from to other, others or deny themselves. That deny right. them their own selves. You, you yeah, know, they're just that. Those are our sources of unconditional love here. I mean, we do have moments where we feel that for yeah. you know for each other. And the idea about Reiki is that this you know it can really work on healing things that love can heal. You know, as a complementary modality, do you think Reiki can be used for almost anything? Because I was reading that it could be used in like trauma, heart attacks, respiratory problems, child abuse, I read, you know, acute infections, chronic illnesses, emotional blockages. Yeah, I I have done Reiki in all of those situations. And Reiki works really like um, what's sort of unique about it is that it works on a physical level. So it's very good for working in with physical things. And it, it, it does that by bringing uh, in sort of a, sh- a quick and strong amount of life force energy of chi to mm-hmm. the body, which when we bring um, energy into the body, it's like uh, we, we increase circulation, oxy- oxygenation, you know, uh, relaxation in the physical body. It works on the, which we talked about, you know, the body being homeostatic and like self-healing when we, when the conditions are correct. All right. Um, and then on an emotional level, you know, it helps us release emotion. So it's really common for people to cry or get angry or have big emotional releases when they're undergoing Reiki. And they don't I, like I keep a big box of tissues by my Reiki table in my office, you know, because people and, you know, there's a lot of medical research and, you know, not just you know, stories about this, but real research that say that we know that when we hold emotions in our body, it creates impact on our physicality, you know, it can create, it's a big source of disease and um, disease processes. So there's, there's incredible healing benefits when we release emotion. And I love what you wrote in your book, if I may go ahead and read it, I just, I think it really gets, it it hits it on the nail. Reiki also works by releasing stuck and stagnant emotions from body tissues and from our energetic system. When we don't allow ourselves to express our feelings, they can get packed away in the cells of the body. This is always bad for us. Nerve cells and tissues hold unresolved trauma and muscle, organ, and fat tissues hold unexpressed emotions. And I think a lot of doctors feel this way. Like you have Dr. Bernie Siegel, Dr. Lisa Rankin, Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who talk about this, how, how we feel can literally like make us physically sick unless we correct it. I think Western medicine knows this, but I don't think we're doing enough to address it. I agree. I mean, I agree. And I would say that most doctors and especially physicians that, ha- that are, empath, you know, empath types like you um, understand the mind body connection. You know, it's certainly been researched intensely. Um, and, and now the mind body emotion connection, you know, and the way that I see this happen is that, um, you, you, you know, it sort of starts with a thought. So we'll have a thought 
maybe the thought is something like, I'm not worthy. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not a very good person. Like, I don't like myself. I'm like yucky some way. And that leads to the emotion of shame, you know, which shame is like the most toxic emotion we have. It's like a hatred or rejection of ourselves. And that shame tends to get lodged in the organs of our third chakra, the solar plexus. So it goes into the gallbladder. It goes into pancreas and spleen, you know, it, mm-hmm. and, and there's certain, and Chinese medicine has known this forever, that certain organs hold certain emotions, you know, like we know kidneys have fear, we know liver holds anger. Um, and there's been a lot of this mapping of the body, um, like spiritual, psychological and emotional issues, how they get mapped into the body in a particular way and how uh, even complex medical issues can also be mapped in, you know, have an energetic and emotional imprint, right? Mm-hmm. So we can, it's not really rocket science. Like, you know, if you shut your heart, if you shut your heart down over and over again, if you shut your heart down, if you close your heart to compassion, if you close your heart to empathy over and over again, you block that chakra. I see this a lot in men, especially men of like an older generation where they weren't allowed to have feelings. They weren't allowed to be emotional. So they shut their heart down, they shut their heart. And then what, 20 years later, they've got heart disease. It's true. And like, what's one of the most common surgeries, like gallbladder removal, you know, gallbladder removal, gallbladder for women, women over 45. And what happens in the gallbladder is that it holds the um, energy of resentment. So from an energy medicine um, perspective, I see it as women who are giver, 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 givers, and don't take anything for themselves, live with a lot of resentment. And 20 years of doing that, they pop a gallbladder because their gallbladder is like literally choked with the um, energetic residue of resentment. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, what, what emotions do the heart and the lung hold? Grief. So grief, unprocessed grief, lack of forgiveness. Those are the two wow. things that really, you know, so you, you see people sort of like the wet lung issues, like asthma, mm-hmm. or pneumonia, bronchitis, things like that. It's often in, from an energy medicine perspective, considered unshed tears unprocessed mm-hmm. grief. And a lot of times when you um, help people resolve grief, and quite frankly, in here in the Western world, we suck at that. We're terrible at helping people process grief. And I know because my father just died like seven weeks ago. And here in the States, there's sort of like a, you get like a, a month, three weeks, a month pass, you know, where people are like, I'm so sorry, you know. And then after that, it's like, like, if you have any lingering sadness, no one has time to hear about it. You know, and what we know about grief is in all the research, incredible research that's been done about this is that it can be up to seven years, seven years of grieving, you know, and like, I like the old European countries, you know, where some, somebody dies and the grandmother goes into black, right. And she's going to wear mourning for the rest of her life. (laughs) You know, that's kind of as an honoring of, of like how grief affects us. So I, I don't think that we are very good at helping people through their emotions we have kind of like a this idea that we should just like rub a little dirt in it and walk it off it's true like our like the pace of life is so fast that like it's like you're supposed to recover quickly when that's not the case like even in medicine like you know they say okay six months of grief that's okay you know but then if it's like over a year that's when you're supposed to get referred to psychiatry when that could be in one's normal process to to recover, I'm, you know. I'm amazed that they say six months because, on a so- yeah. social perspective, I think I think it's more like six weeks, and then yeah. no, like people are not talking about whatever happened to you. But then I think like even the support system is pretty paltry. Like counseling is so inundated, it's so overwhelmed that you get maybe if you're lucky once a month. You know, in certain systems, that's not really effective. Like once a month, like. I, I find that a lot of this is a little bit of a problem, really, actually, in my industry. But I think there's a tsunami of people that are incredibly frustrated by the medical, the Western medical model and how it handles most of these things. Like it's really um, sort of looking at people as a as a pathology or, you know, a disease process. Right. I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir and talking to you, but. Um, and so people are very frustrated with the lack of treatment or, or the lack of efficacy of the care, the treatment they're getting from the medical system. So they're turning more and more to alternative healers like me and my students to help manage 
things, mental health issues, addictions, physical health issues, bereavement. You know, this is like a average day for me of what, what my clients bring me. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately for me, I have a background in psychology and counseling. So I'm able, you know, I'm able to handle that. But I also train a lot of Reiki practitioners how to deal with these really difficult um issues that people are coming to because they're not getting relief. They can't find a counselor. They can't find an appointment with a counselor. They can't find doctors who take long enough Mm -hmm. to listen to them, you know, and, and provide a holistic solution to whatever's happening. Exactly. It's a problem when you feel like your doctor's not listening to you and your doctor's rushing because you're absolutely right. And that's the problem. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Or they may not even be like, I know many fine physicians who have this um, ideas of how they would like to treat people they're not allowed to do because they're, it's not in alignment with the policies of their hospital or their, or their insurance. And I think that it's not what doctors want for the most yeah. part, but it's sort of their hands are tied in a lot of ways by the rules and regulations that they have to work under. Yeah, I mean, that's why doctors are the number one uh, group uh, that kills itself, you know? How is that true? The number one population, yeah. So we're all suffering too. Like we work in this system and something's wrong. If like we're the group that kills ourselves when we're, you know, quote unquote healers, you know? Yeah, it's awful. I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. I would have said it was veterans, which is a really high, high suicide rate. But I, I'm not surprised. And especially nowadays in the in the days of COVID and you know, like I just have a ton of compassion for um, for all the front, you know frontline medical workers who are just out there, r- literally risking their lives for us. And I um, I love to work with medical people, and I always have. I've been training doc nurses, physicians, all kinds of hospital people, Reiki for so long, for twenty years now. And back in the day, it's so interesting that there's been the shift to me, and it, I do find it encouraging. Um, as difficult as the medical system we have is, I do find there's it's certainly improved. Like I don't know, like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I was first teaching Reiki, most of the medical people that I was teaching would hide it. Like mm-hmm. they were, you know, they would learn it. And they were these nurses, such good hearted people, you know, they learn Reiki and then like, like do it on the sly on patients when nobody was looking because it wasn't allowed and they knew it worked. And they know, you know, there's been lots of research, things like therapeutic touch that, you know, we understand that when people have like um, empathic, compassionate, non-sexual nurturing touch, we get better, you know? And when, when especially that's combined with an intention, like a prayer-like intention, um, there it's very um, effective in helping people recover in, in even hospital settings. But there was this, I, like years ago, I trained this lady as nurse. She worked at a big hospital in Boston and um, on a, on a um, med surge ward. And, in there in the staff room, like the, the head nurse was like looking at like suspicious of anyone who might be doing it, like, don't be doing that Reiki, you know, like are you doing that? Like you that can't be happening in this hospital. And so one day she came in, my student came into the staff room and on the bulletin board was written in the huge letters, there'll be absolutely no healing allowed in this hospital. Wow. Because why is healing in medicine just pills? Do you know what I mean? There's so many modalities. Like mm-hmm. if Reiki is love why wouldn't we all benefit from that right i mean in all these things touch prayer meditation psychological help connection you know listening we know people get better when we when they get that yeah my other career was working in the hospital, you know, and I knew this nurse who's uh, doing qigong on her patients uh, as another treatment modality for them. And there is this patient, I mean, he had been in the hospital chronically, like a really, really long time, like over a year. But anyway, she was doing qigong on him and he looked great. I'd never seen him look so great. But she was telling me because she didn't like do her grounding um, rituals, uh, she had gotten intensely sick for three weeks where he looked great and she looked very, you know, she, she didn't benefit, you know, how is Reiki uh, different from other healing modalities then? Well, this is a, um, this is a pitfall for many people who work as healers, you know, and especially, especially the empaths of the world have like, we call the empaths, like the psychic sponges of the world, you know, they're, they, um, their natural tendency is to absorb 
the energy, the pain, suffering, physical pain, emotional pain, um, and suffering of the people that are around them. And they're often drawn to work like nurses, physicians, um, you know, they, they tend to end up in the care therapists, ministers, that kind of thing. Right. And unless they learn really, really good energy management practices, their natural tendency is to absorb the negative energy of other people. And if they don't know how to let it go, they can, it can stick around um, inside them. And a lot of untrained empaths and healers are sick a lot, have illness, fatigue, depression, anxiety, because we don't know how to release that energy that we've absorbed from other people. So it's like one of my missions in life is to help empaths and sensitives learn these, these basic energy management fundamentals. How do we clear energy we picked up from other people? How do we ground? Um, how do we stay connected to the earth? How do we fill our energy fields? Because we tend to lose energy easily. We kind of leak energy away out of us too and people take our energy. And then how do we stay protected? How do we work inside sort of a protection bubble so that we're not so porous? Because mm -hmm. the energy field of an empath is very spongy, very porous. So it sounds, that's sort of sadly typical. You know, that guy was really, really ill and she absorbed a lot of it. Um, that's something that's called an energy transfer in energy medicine. So when we do an energy transfer with somebody the person that's in a higher energy state don't gives their energy to the person in a lower energy state. And, and when we're giving our own chi, our own life force energy, we, we never really should do that because we have a limited supply of it, sort of like blood, you know, mm -hmm. like if we give it, we, our body has to make more, you know, and what happens is we tend to give uh, out of it uh, ourselves. And inside that, um, like, because the, you know, the way energy flows, there's doesn't really, like a vacuum, right? So I can give you a little bit of my energy and I'll have an empty space inside of me that your energy then fills. So we actually transfer energy instead of, and then, who, you know, who's ever on a lower energy state feels better, who's ever in a higher energy state feels worse. And this is what happens a lot naturally and unconsciously for people that are natural healers that haven't had a lot of training in how not to do that. So energy management training is key. And Reiki is also very helpful in that situation because when we do Reiki, we're not giving our own energy. We're filling ourselves with this supply of universal life force energy, this unlimited supply. So I can come in on Monday morning to my office and be sort of tired and not feel great. When I start to do Reiki, I'm filling myself first. It's like we become a, a, a tunnel or a conduit, a channel for this energy that moves through us. It fills us first and then the, and then it, goes into the person that we're working with so that we're not giving our personal energy. Mm -hmm. and so I, I find people who work hands-on with other people, you know, massage therapists, nurses, physicians, hairdressers, nail techs, um, estheticians are often in that situation where they're doing unconscious energy transfers. And once they learn Reiki, they're not doing that. And that's um, can be very, very, very beneficial for people like that. Yeah, and I think in a lot of those positions, I think we end up giving our own energy to the, you know, to the Unless client. Unless you train otherwise, yeah. I think you will, honestly. Yeah, not being aware makes you at, you know, at like a poor state, yeah. It's your natural, unless your state, it's your normal state unless you're trained otherwise. Exactly. And I think that's also why there's such a big burnout problem for people who are sensitive and people who are in the caring industry because they're not taught those basic skills. Exactly. And I think to kind of remember, you know, you heal yourself first or you make sure you have enough before you help someone else so that you can keep on going, you know. How how does the Reiki practitioner feel when you're giving a session and how does the um how does the client feel during a session? It's a great question, Michelle. Thank you for asking it. Um so it depends a lot on whether you're a person who's naturally sensitive to feeling energy. So some people are the highly sensitive people, the empathy type people have a natural aptitude for feeling and sensing the flow of energy. And if you're that kind of person, you're going to feel if you're either giving or receiving Reiki, um, you're going to feel heat, tingling, pulsing. Some, some people describe it as like a flow of like water, like energy through um, through them. Some people describe it as um, a kind of resistance feeling, like when you put the wrong ends of a magnet together. 
and almost everyone feels heat because Reiki is sort of famous for the hot hands. It's a hot hand modality. When you receive the Reiki attunement, your hands get really hot. And when you put your hands on people, they heat up a lot. Now, not everybody feels that, but everyone will feel the results of the Reiki. Mm-hmm. And if you feel the results of the Reiki, you're going to feel relaxed, at peace. Um, people fall asleep on the Reiki table all the time. Um, it's, you know, snoring. <laughs> they're not crying. They're snoring. That's <laughs> my my experience you get one or the other or sometimes both and that's awesome um and there's sort of a particular gift that reiki has which is to work on people with depleted energy so which is as far as i can tell anyone over the age of 12 um right about now like we're we're just like we're chronically energy depleted we're chronically tired so reiki has a a way of filling um our lost energy so people um you're relaxed but you don't but you're also sort of energized in a funny way when you come off the table. That's interesting. Um, I really loved how like, you know, like for anxiety issues and like sleep issues, like Reiki is a great treatment modality for that too. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And also for depression. Um, so for anxiety and especially um, there, there's two hand positions you can do if you learn Reiki mm-hmm. on yourself, if you get Reiki one. It's one hand on your heart and one hand on your belly um, tends to reduce anxiety. I think it's because the adrenal glands are like right, you know, behind the in the, the solar plexus in the third chakra. So we can kind of when we can kind of get the adrenal glands to calm down a little bit, people can come out of anxiety. And anxiety is one of those. It's so common. I mean, it's and especially it in is. the younger in the younger generations, like my kids are in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And I literally think like every person on the planet right now in their 20s is full of anxiety. Yeah, I think it's in all ages. It's just that other ages hide it. But then, you know, in behind closed doors, they'll like be a little bit more honest about it. But I think in like medicine, a lot of people are kind of taking medication, you know, like temporary, really not going to fix the long term. There's really no long term resolution like benzodiazepines, like they're just taking it. But instead of really, I think, getting to the gist of it, like the reason why. Yeah. And the problem with the benzos, as you know, is they're highly addictive and they lose efficacy over time. So you have to constantly like up your you know, if you're going to stick with them forever, you and they have side effects like all medications too that aren't so great. So I think like coming to the root cause of the anxiety, counseling, like and, and anxiety is a complex problem. You know, so there's lots of different kinds of anxiety um, that, that needs different treatments. You know, so if, sometimes it's due to trauma that hasn't been resolved. Sometimes it's due to like empaths who are very sensitive and unshielded will just feel anxious being out in the world you know, there's just a million different kinds of anxiety and they do need different treatments, but Reiki tends to work on just bringing the body into uh, a relaxed, more relaxed state, uh, physiologically calming down the symptoms of, of anxiety. And then also I think empowering people to feel like there's something they can do that's going to reduce their anxiety without taking a pill. Yeah. I feel like there's such an over-reliance and, you know, even like with insomnia, insomnia is such a common problem, but there's such a reliance on medication to go to sleep when sleeping yeah. should be like innately within us. It should be so natural, yet people need medication to go to sleep. And the way I, oh, what were you going to say? <laughs> I just think it's sad. I mean, yes, yeah, so yeah. common. There's something wrong, like, you know, and the way I see Reiki is like, unlike medication, like, Sometimes we really need to take medicine. I think that's it's helpful in certain situations. But there's also like a risk and benefits to medication. You know, like hopefully the benefits outweigh the risk and it's going to be more helpful to you than not and hopefully not addictive. But right. Reiki, I feel like there's really no negatives. You know, like you're just starting from your baseline and you can only go up from there. It's like, ultimately it doesn't seem like it's going to hurt you. You're only going to benefit from it. Absolutely. You know, I think that's so true. And and with sleep, there's a real simple thing you can do with sleep. A lot of times people have trouble sleeping because they can't calm their minds down. So if your problem with sleep is you're thinking, 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 your mind won't settle then you, you can do a Reiki position where you put your hand, if you lie on your back and you put your hands, once you've had a Reiki attunement, on the back of your head and you do long, slow breathing. What that does is it drops the 
energy, the life force energy out of your frontal cortex, which is the thinking machine, and down into your brainstem. And if we can sort of quiet the frontal cortex and drop the energy into the brainstem, um, sleep happens pretty quickly. So I, mm-hmm. I teach people, and when I teach them self-healing protocols at level one, to do that for sleep, and people swear by it. It's just like your lights out in like a few minutes. So one can go to like for a Reiki session, but it seems like you also really recommend it for self-healing to Mm -hmm. learn it or get the first attunement to actually heal yourself and use it to to hopefully feel better. Why not? It's sort of like, you know, like give the man a fish or teach the man to to fish is kind of how I see that. And of course, you know, we need, we do need, um, I mean, I go to regular energy um, sessions, Reiki sessions myself just for my maintenance in my life where I want somebody else to do it for me. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the more busy I am and the more um, stress I, I am, the more I've got going on, the more I double up on my self-care and receiving Reiki treatments is myself is a really important part of my own self-care. Um, and, um, and I, I practice Reiki every day on myself just in order, you know, to get by, two o'clock in the morning, you can't call your Reiki practitioner when, you know, when you're, ha- when you're having a panic attack somewhere, we, we don't always have access to other people. And this, I think it's so empowering. And I, I, um, when my kids were teenagers, I, I did a lot of training of teens, um, kids like tweens and teens, how to do Reiki. And I love that too, because Reiki one gave them a way to help themselves and also help each other. I think, you know, knowing that there is like different ways in which you can deal with things, like when life is hard, you know, even as a teenager, you're really confused or, you know, there's anxiety with all the things that are going on or stressed to know that there is like tools in your tool belt to like actually help you resources. I think that's like remarkable. It's great. And I, I love, you know, I totally agree with you. Like there, it's one tool out of many tools. I'm not saying it, it should replace anything. Um, we definitely need Western medicine has its beautiful place and solving people's medical problems. Like, thank God for that. And there it's really, really good at what it does. And there's sort of this other area where it's, we haven't yet figured out how to help some of these bigger issues, these sort of energetic, psychological, emotional, spiritual issues that, that are very entwined in our human experience that Western medicine just doesn't have a great solution for yet let's hope they do someday. But yeah. I think it's a tool. And I love that you said it's one tool in a toolbox of many tools. Because I think as a culture, I think we always go for like the easier answer. And a lot of times, like even right now, it's like alcohol or drugs, when that's not even the treatment modality. I think going for the actual treatment, you know, a complementary treatment modality or an actual treatment is always the better answer for long term. You know, I used to live in Japan, like I lived in Japan for, for quite a few years when I was young. And um, it's so funny, diff- the difference in the way that they they handle this problem. So in Japan, you go, if you go into an emergency room, or you go to urgent care, or you go to your physician for something, the first thing you see is the acupuncturist. And if the acupuncturist can't solve your problem, which a lot of times they can, then they escalate you up to more Western problems, mm-hmm. you know, Western medicine solutions to problems. So um, I thought that was a really interesting take. We don't really do that, you know, in our country, we kind of do it the other way around. It's if we could sort of front load our, our, the, the problems people have with these alternative things and then reserve the real, the medical stuff for the really, the, th- the things that that's, they're really good at. I think people would feel better served. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. Like, I wasn't even listening to people at my job because I was constantly rushed. One eye on the computer, one eye on the patient, seven minutes. Like, what are you really going to do? You know, like your average appointment, you know, like if the blood pressure, all of that still counts when they're getting room. But even like the acupuncture, it's like to actually sit down with a patient and like listen to them. I mean, like, did you feel better oftentimes after you met with the acupuncturist? Of course. Yeah. And I, and I think that when I, um, when I do Reiki sessions myself on people, I spend a lot of time listening to them. And I think being listened to is an incredible healing in itself. And people sit down, people I've never met, they walk to my office five minutes, five, five seconds ago, they sit down in my chair and I listen, 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 and they 
cry. I have tissues right by my chair. They cry. I don't know mm-hmm. why I'm crying. I'm like, you because you've been holding it in. Like you got some shit going on in your life that's pretty heavy. And everyone is think is so stressed and so under supported in their life. And this is where I think these other modalities can can really um, offer solace to people and give them sort of what they need. I mean, the other thing that I, we're talking a lot about Reiki, but the other two things that I think are incredibly beneficial are meditation and yoga or, or Tai Chi, those kinds of energy things. Mm-hmm. So those, those things too, like instead of um, taking drugs and alcohol, could we teach people meditation? Could we teach people mindfulness? You know, and those, those things are often taught in conjunction with Reiki or provided in conjunction with Reiki in the um, CAM units, the complementary and alternative medicine units um, that in, in hospitals. So we know like that they're also very, very good at helping people calm themselves, get their stress down, process their emotions. Um, we just need better ways to process our feelings. And I think people drink, can't sleep, they drink, they do drugs because they don't know how to make their feelings go away. Like make these uncomfortable, yeah. painful feelings go away. They don't know how to process their feelings in a productive way. Um, and there's still sadly a lot of stigma around counseling and therapy and there aren't enough counts. It's not available enough. It's expensive. It's like, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not an equal, we don't have but all those problems are so it. common. It's like, it's just a shame. We're not honest about it, you know? Like that's as common as, hi, how are you? Like, really? It's totally, it is. And I mean, so we'd be so much better off if people learned like effective ways to process their emotions on a daily basis. Like we learn to brush our teeth and take a shower, but we're not taught that. So we we have stress, we have emotion, we have pain, we have trauma, we have, you know, all of the stuff that we, we don't know what to do with. And so we have to kind of find whatever comfort we can by, you know, all, the whole array of addiction and bad behaviors that we, you know, addictive behaviors that we, I say bad behaviors, but I just mean like sort of shadow comforts. They're comforting in the moment, but they're not good for us in the long run. Yeah, temporary. And in the end, you may need more. And in the end, it doesn't cure anything. And you're le- left feeling worse. Like, you know, like a person who drinks a lot because they're feeling badly, do they wake up feeling better or worse in the morning? Worse. You know? Yeah, it's garbage. You know, it doesn't work. It mm, doesn't work in the long term. It's all that temporary relief. And it, I don't think they're difficult. They're, it's not so hard to find an answer to these things. But somehow we're, we're not really in a place in our society yet where we're, we're giving priority to helping people figure this stuff out. Yeah, that it's real, that many people share it, and that there are other ways in which to address it even long term. Can I ask you, um, so in terms of like, you know, Reiki sessions, you know, it's like, does one session ever really, is it effective or do people generally need, you know, a couple of sessions to kind of help with certain ailments and everything? I think people can find very strong improvement in even one session. Mm -hmm. I've had people tell me that, and my students report to me that one session has had really permanent impact on people. Um, I, f- I do find that if you have like really chronic issues, then long-term, just sort of you think about it, if you go to a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. One therapy session is really helpful, but if you have really dug in chronic issues, you may need you may need a year of therapy. Um, I have people who come to get Reiki once and that does the trick for them and they don't come back. I have people that come once a month, you know, or go once a week when they're going through something quite difficult until they're, they feel better. Yeah, it's kind of like filling up your soul tank, or in this case, kind of like your body tank in a way, right? Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yes. May I ask you, what's the most common area that people need Reiki? Well, I think, honestly, it's emotional. So Mm -hmm. people will come with depression and anxiety, loss, bereavements. Um, That's really what I get. Or people feel stuck in their lives. They don't know how to move forward. So I get people that they're like frustrated, stuck they know that they're for something they know they're special that they have a mission and they don't know how to they don't know what that's for that's drives people that's the number one question i get as a psychic too what what am i what's my life purpose what am i here Mm -hmm. for that drives people crazy when they can't figure that out it's really makes people miserable so 
Um, even more than relationship issues, even more than money issues, that's the one question I get over and over. My whole 30 years I've been working as a psychic, that's it. The uh, So I tend to get this stuck people who need help or people that are in a massive amount of transition and need help and support. They're going through divorce. They're going through loss. They're, you know, um, of some bereavement of some kind. They're, they're changing jobs. They've lost their job in a pandemic. They, you know, I don't know what, when we're at in the crossroads, we need help and support. And then I also get a lot for chronic pain, chronic pain, mm -hmm. chronic anxiety, chronic depression. Um, and, and Reiki's fantastic for clearing up chronic pain. And I think the field of medicine is really not effective in dealing with any of those things. All right. Stress, anxiety, depression, chronic pain. That's one of the most frustrating things for medicine. Like we don't really know. We just throw like narcotics or, you know, at patients, but we don't really know. And um, acupuncture, Reiki, and Reiki is so good for chronic pain. It's chiropractics, like the, some of the real deep body work like working in the fascia can be very um, mm -hmm. fascial work can be very um, beneficial for people with chronic pain too. May I ask you in terms of the life purpose question, is the answer ever really far away or is the answer right in front of them and they just don't see it? Mm, I think it depends on the person. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who have lived um, a life that their minds decided was a good idea, you know, or they're, they, they're, they want to be an artist, but they don't, their parents told them the whole, their whole life that you can't do that. You can't make a living as an artist. It's not okay to do that. You know, you'll be a starving artist, like go to business school, you know, mm -hmm. so they go to business school and they do something and it doesn't feel right to them. It never really feels right to them. And I think people confuse a lot or think a lot of times that their life purpose is a job. And it isn't really, it's more like a state of being. It's like the function of, or the essence of who you are at the deepest level of your soul. It's kind of like we can think of them in terms of archetypes too. So I have, I, I think that my life purpose is to be a teacher and a healer. And I mean, I would say like, I have a beautiful office. I see, you know, a bunch of clients every week. And I would say, you can take me out of my office, put me in McDonald's flipping hamburgers, and I'm still going to put my hands on people and talk to their dead grandmothers. Because I can't, <laughs> it's like, I can't help it. It's like who I am as a person. It's who I am as a person at the deepest level. I do that if I'm in line at, in, in the supermarket or if I'm buying my coffee at Starbucks or if I'm wherever I am, that's what I'm, who I am and what I'm doing. And I think our life purpose is more like that. And when we know what it is and we allow ourselves to do that, we tend to choose jobs that naturally are in alignment with that. And we'll feel more at peace with ourselves, right? Like naturally. If you you love your work more the most when it's the most in alignment with who you really are. Yeah. So that dread, that feeling, that dread is real. Yeah. It's totally <laughs> real. And we sort of force ourselves to do stuff we're not that's not in alignment with our mission or our purpose here yeah. because whatever we get received some message that it's not okay to be that way or do that. Exactly. Like how many times do we accept that dread? Oh my gosh, you know, your stories from uh, your, your Reiki share stories from your book were so funny when you were talking about how it's important for the Reiki practitioner to keep their eyes open. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And I Reiki, so Reiki shares, if you don't know what they are, they're um, groups, I mean, this is pre-pandemic, but we would do, we would get together in person with my students and a Reiki teacher would bring their students together and sometimes we would practice on each other and sometimes we would open the group to public and let people come in and we need people to practice on, you know, and that's what a Reiki share is. And uh, I did one time see a woman who was really connecting, like she was having some, the healer, the Reiki practitioner who was definitely communing with her angels or having some really great internal experience. And meanwhile, her client on the table was, I think, having a seizure. I mean, there was some like, intense distress going on in the, on the table. Um, and the healer had no idea because her eyes were closed. So I do teach my students, encourage my students to learn to work with their eyes open just because we need to be present. We need to be in contact with our clients to see what's happening. Are they crying? Are did they stop breathing? Are they, mm -hmm. you know, in distress? Are they, are, are they having signs of energetic release, which is when, when we move energy through the system, it can hit a counter block. And when the block is released, there'll be 
uh, you know, people will sigh or take a deep breath or twitch or, you know, flutter their eyelashes. There's all these things that are going on that if our eyes are open, we can, we're aware of that. When someone has that kind of emotional release when they're getting Reiki, how long does that typically last for? It can be like seconds, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they, they may just like feel like, I think sometimes people feel it's a bit like, you know, when you pull the, pull the plug out of your bathtub and everything goes, mm-hmm. it all drains and it, it, it's a good feeling, you know, um, that can be permanent. The effects are permanent in some sense. Um, some people, you know, I do occasionally get people who, where the Reiki and the healing work opens sort of Pandora's box for them. They start mm-hmm. crying on the table and I, they call me and I'm like, I haven't stopped crying for three days, you know, or it's been three weeks. I felt terrible since that Reiki session. <laughs> and I'm like, well, how, what were you holding back? You know, like what, Yeah. what were you holding in? What, what have you shoved into the emotional closet, you know, for years and years and years. And then we open that door and you have like what I call the closet avalanche, <laughs> everything falls out. And from a healer standpoint, that's good. You know, that progress for that person, that's beneficial. And, if you've been holding your feelings aside and you have a lot of judgment about being emotional, then it's scary or it can feel bad. Mm-hmm. You know, but we do always want to encourage people to, to have emotional release and like, let it out better out than in, you know? Yeah. Like to really release it so that you can start replacing those feelings with feeling better again. Mm-hmm. Right. And it might be journaling. So journaling, I think is quite good. I think we need an every day, way to process our feelings. Maybe like it's journaling. Maybe I talk to myself in the car on my way to work. I'm like, how, how are you feeling today, Lisa? That's kind of how that goes. Um, and people learn things like EFT or tapping or um, Reiki or other kinds of um, things like yoga. Like there's all these mm-hmm. kinds of things we can do to help us process our feelings on a, on a regular basis. And then sometimes we need help. We need to work with a therapist or a Reiki practitioner, or any kind of healer. Um, I, I always say that's like, you got to brush your teeth every day and that's what you do yourself. But then every six months you go to a professional to get a deep clean on that. And that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Except It's every month, really. Kind of like a maintenance. Yes. Like a maintenance to kind of help us mm-hmm. keep our, our emotional selves tooled up. And, and I, you know, it's, harder and harder to do that right now because the world is just kind of more stressful than ever. And when we go under stress, our unusual stress, I think our tendency is to drop our self-care routine and really we should be doubling down on it. We should be like doing even more. I agree. You know, like now is not really the time to be drinking more. And I think drinking is pretty up during like the pandemic, but really get, to like get to the answers. And I think to acknowledge how we feel, I think that's self-compassion and then hopefully let it go in in like a very safe manner to, to let go of those feelings. Exactly. And the feelings, feelings are pretty like momentary, like when our emotional self is really healthy and really tuned up, feelings come and go like waves on a beach. You know, the feeling comes, it washes through your body, through your energy field, through your emotional self. And you're like, oh my God, I'm having a feeling, you know, I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling jealous. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling sad. It's like the wave comes and then it goes. And if you look at little kids, like little kids, like under five or three, two, three, four, like that age, that's what they do. They have their feelings, their feelings like wash through them and then they fully express their feeling and then the feeling is gone. They don't hang on to them. They don't linger. You know, it's only as we get socialized and told not to do that. You know, we have to be, you don't get angry. You don't bite people. You don't hit people. You don't cry in public. Like, you know, lots of us learn a habit of holding our breaths when we're having emotions. Um, You know, when you're, when you're in first grade, you learn how to hold your breath so you don't cry on, you know, (laughs) at school and get teased. Right. And then we have to unlearn, then we go to, we become adults, we have to go to therapy and work with healers to unlearn those habits. But, um, but I I do think that's the natural state. And I use my breath to move energy, emotional energy through my body when their emotions are arising in the moment. So I don't cry and melt melt down in public because we really can't do that. But I do, I'm like, wow, I'm having an intense emotion right now. You know, okay, it's gone. And then the next one comes. 
It's true. It's kind of like the wave of life, you know, the waves of life. Yeah. I think I agree with you. There's so much to learn from children. And I think this like generation of children, they're like pretty remarkable because they talk about their feelings. Like when I was little, I never talked about anything. I just held it in, you know, but my kids like literally tell me how they feel or what they felt bad about during that day, even whether or not I ask or not. But I think there's a lot to learn from that, you know, to be really honest about it and that it's okay no matter how you felt. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that also has something to do with you as a, as a mom, even though you're not, you're open to that. If you weren't open to receiving that, they wouldn't be telling you. Although I do want my eight-year-old to stop walking around the house naked, but still, you know. I, pro- I promise, pretty sure I promise that will clear up by, by, before the photo. I'm praying, I'm praying, you know. Oh my gosh, Lisa, thank you for such a great conversation. It was so interesting. And I just want to say, I respect you so much. You know, you're such a light, you know, you're so interesting and you're such a great teacher. Thank you for being a light in the world. I love that you said that. Thank you so much. And I think the same is true for you. So thank you for doing this beautiful podcast and um, beginning to, you know, share all of you, what you know, and your journey and um, your light to the world and the way that you're doing it. So thank you so much. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.